All right, ladies and gentlemen, a good morning and welcome back to Talmudic Ethics. So it's great to see you here this morning, both in person and online. Um, okay, so today we have a very powerful class and the focus... The, okay, <laughs> good. Can you guys hear me now? All right, perfect. So today our focus is on medical ethics, specifically regarding end-of-life issues and end-of-life questions. It's a powerful topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's holding open just in case. Actually, there you go. Okay, so today we're talking about medical ethics and specifically end-of-life issues. So just to kind of reset the conversation, because this really does play off of what we discussed last week. So if you recall last week, we started with a case study, a very, uh, very emotional, a very powerful case study about, um, uh, that happened in the Holocaust with boys that were teenager, teenage boys that were rounded up by the Nazis, slated for murder, 1,400 of them. Their father has the ability, has the means to essentially ransom, save his son, but knowing that if he does so, another child who's not slated for execution will be put in his son's stead. He was racked with a moral quandary, within, with, uh, with really this, this question of, you know, what do I do? Is it right? Is it, is it, um, is it morally, ethically correct to save my son knowing that I'm going to be essentially sentencing another innocent young man to death. Ultimately, the rabbi, based on, we had a very uh, um, elaborate conversation last week, ultimately the rabbi um, told him that he could, not, um, uh, he could not rule either way on it. It wasn't so clear cut that it would be allowed, nor is it clear cut that it wouldn't be allowed. The father made the decision that he could not live with the possibility of taking one life to save his son's life, he ultimately did nothing, and his son was indeed executed the next day. The, the, the point of last week's class, aside from obviously um, examining the case study, was to establish a few things. Number one, in the Jewish understanding, life is precious. Life is something that is a gift uh, and is something super precious. In addition, we, we established a framework which is gonna be helpful throughout this discussion, throughout the series, that Judaism looks at, um, looks at things in terms of responsibilities rather than rights. So in the US, in our modern society, we look at things in terms of rights. A right to do this, a right to do that, and then you have people with conflicting rights. I have a right to entertain people in my home. You have the right to sleep. Well, what happens if I'm throwing a party at midnight? You know, whose right wins out? And there's ways that we deal with rights. Whereas in Judaism, it's less of a question about rights and more of a question about responsibilities or obligations, right? It's the, 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 these are obligations. It's not a right to life, but more of an obligation to protect and preserve life. This plays out whether it's regarding someone else's life or my own life. We have a responsibility to life. The question today is, how far does that go? When we talk about responsibility to life, how far does that go? Specifically vis-a-vis end-of-life issues. When is it morally justifiable, perhaps even morally preferable, to allow a person to die with dignity as opposed to prolonging their life with medical procedures that might just prolong a life filled with pain? 
and other such questions. These are the questions that we're going to address uh, today. And we're going to look at them through, I would say, a classical view, like a classical American view, and, but with a major focus on uh, a unique Jewish framework of understanding. And we're going to begin the class today, like we did last week, with, with a case study. Actually, we have two case studies. And I'm going to read these cases. You can read along. Um, and as we go through these, I want to have a bit of a conversation about what you think and how each case study differs from the other. So let's begin on page 22 in the booklets. Um, learning activity case study number one. This was a real question. This is a real life case study that happened a few decades ago. Um, as you'll see, or you'll see at the end of the at the end of the text, this comes from a letter that was sent to uh, one of the big rabbis, leading rabbis in Israel, by a Dr. Shimon Glick, who was head of the internal unit at the Central Hospital of the Negev Be'er Sheva. So here you have the head of a hospital. Um, who is thinking conscientiously about real-life medical dilemmas that are coming into, into his hospital, and he's asking the rabbi for a little bit of guidance and perspective. By the way, no different than you would have in, a, um, in any hospital where they have an ethics unit and they have people that are thinking about things in an ethical perspective. You know, there's the medical question, what can be done medically, and then the question, what should be done ethically. Those are two separate questions, and it's always good to have kind of a, a, a framework for addressing that. So here, this, this doctor asked this rabbi the following question, case study one. The esteemed rabbi Shlomo Zalman Auerbach, that's the rabbi who this is being addressed to. The, the doctor writes, I have some patients who suffer from terminal cancer. The excruciating pain they live with is unrelenting. In medical clinics around the world, it is, it is acceptable to provide strong painkillers such as morphine that are highly effective in easing the pain. The question I have is that it is almost certain that these painkillers will lead to the shortening of the patient's life, although they are not provided for that purpose. This is because due to the weak state of the patients, the medications weaken the respiratory system, thereby greatly increasing the risk of contracting pneumonia, which can lead to the death of the patient. So just to, to, before we go further, to understand the medical piece of this, here's a doctor, head of the internal unit, who's seeing patients all the time, and he's dealing with cancer patients. And he says some of these patients are suffering, suffering terribly. And everyone, every hospital, every facility around the world is giving morphine. Morphine is what's that's the basic, uh, that's the go-to care for a patient that's in pain. You give morphine. He says, in my experience, I have noticed that morphine overall weakens the system, leading to other things. And by his account, again, this is one doctor's account, by his account, it is shortening the lifespan of the patients. Let's continue. I am quite sure, he doubles down on this, that if we compare the outcomes of patients who did get morphine with those who did not, we would find that the mortality rate among those who did, not, who did get morphine is much higher. Mortality rate, by the way, of human beings is 100%. Right? Everyone who's lived has passed away. So when he says mortality rate, I'm, I'm pretty sure he means in the sense of shortening the, the, the length of time the person has. So despite this fact, the doctor writes, I have never encountered a physician who would question the ethics of administering these painkillers in order to lighten the suffering of the patient. My question to you, esteemed rabbi, is what does Jewish law have to say with regard to this question? Here you have a doctor who's administering the hospital and he's administering morphine. This is, this is a normative course of action. But he's thinking about this ethically. He's thinking about this morally. 
from, from his Jewish conscience and just a human conscience. He's thinking, one second. Um, is this the right thing? If the, if the result of the painkiller is to, on some level, to, to shorten the lifespan of the person, is that a calculus that we are permitted, that, that, that is ethically permitted to make? Again, I don't know that people think twice about this, but this doctor did think twice about this and asked the rabbi, before we continue, I don't want to debate the medical part of it because I don't, I'm not a doctor. I play one on TV, I'm kidding. I'm not a doctor um, and I, I, I can't weigh in on mortality rates and length of life. Assuming what this doctor has noticed is true, assuming that that's true, that the morphine takes away the pain but also shortens the lifespan. How would you weigh in on that? What would you think? Give the morphine, don't give the morphine. Give the morphine. Yeah. Yeah. In the old days, they used to think of pneumonia being the old person's friend because that's what people would contract and they would pass away. And I think that it's still something that's valid these days. You're saying that this is shortening, even if it shortens the lifespan of the person, but it's also ending the suffering. Yeah. Good. So that's one way of thinking of it, right? Why should we... I mean, how, how do we balance quality of life with length of life? Is he said for breaking it down on that, on the, uh, along those lines? That's one way to look at it. Any other thoughts on this? Oh, patient autonomy. Let's ask the patient. It's a great, it's a great point. Certainly in the United States, the, I would say with, when it comes to, the, to medical questions, you know, in our country, in our society, we put probably number one autonomy, patient autonomy. Probably the most revered thing is what does the patient want? Which, by the way, is driven by a system of rights. I have a right to determine what happens to me. Who else should I have a right? And if not me, then the one whom I've um, appointed as my medical proxy. Um, or my wishes in a medical, advanced medical directive. Um, and certainly Judaism would have a bit of a slightly different take. Not different necessarily in outcome, but a different perspective. What are my obligations? Right? Even if I have a right, but what are my obligations to life? Maybe to preserve life, even at the cost of suffering. Or do we say, no, suffering is suffering, and, and, and even if life is going to end a little bit sooner, but at least the suffering is alleviated. This is kind of the tension that we're dealing with. But you're right, in, in the U.S. system, absolutely the autonomy, personal medical autonomy, that would be, that would be enshrined as, as number one. I just want to mention also that in some states, medically-assisted death is permitted. We're going to get into that in our discussion. Yes, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be we'll be kind of uh, um, discussing and exploring that. The que- that's a, which is which is a, which is a you know a topic that 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 is worthy of, of conversation. Now let's look at case study two. So that's case study one. Case study two is slightly different, and this takes place in the United States. Okay, so the previous case study took place real case, real real doctor, real rabbi in Israel. This is a real doctor and a real rabbi in the United States. Rabbi Feinstein, who's being addressed here, was Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was a rabbi in the Lower East Side and was tremendously respected as someone who had um, just a a tremendous um, understanding of Jewish law, Jewish ethics, as well as other areas of of life. So here is the the question that Dr. N.Z. Ringel asks. I have a patient who is terminally ill. There's very little we can do to relieve him from his unbearable suffering. 
are we required to provide the patient with remedies, which while not providing a cure, will delay his death for a period of time, or is it better that he dies sooner? In other words, this question is, should we provide remedies or do procedures that will extend this person's lifespan, and by virtue of that extend the suffering, right, just prolong the suffering because the lifespan is prolonged, or is it better not to do anything and allow the person to die sooner and end the suffering? What's the difference between this case and the first case? Anybody notice the difference? What do you guys see as the difference between the two case studies? What's, yeah. If it's basically kosher to um, provide medication to lessen the pain. Good, right. Right, so again, right. So in case study one, the issue is providing medication to lessen the pain in the moment, which might also lessen the lifespan. In case study two, it's not about giving medication which might, not, which might lessen life. The question is, should we do a procedure to extend life, which will then extend suffering, or should we do nothing and allow the patient to naturally pass away? Um, look, I, I'm sure we all have stories. I, I, can, I have stories with members of my family. Questions came up at the end of life. And the question was, should we do CPR? Should we do, you know, which is going to break ribs, you know, with, uh, and, and, not, and probably not extend much and, and, and create intense suffering? Or should we do nothing? This is a question that our family was faced with, um, with a loved one. So I, I feel like these are, que- these are real life questions. And, you know, I remember we got that call. It was probably like 2 o'clock in the morning. And you're there at 2 o'clock in the morning trying to think of, you know, you know what, what's, and the doctor's like, what do we do now? Like, there's, there are two options here. <laughs> what would you like to do? And it's, it's, it's very intense. And it, uh, it is a, you know, even with an advanced medical directive, in the moment, you know, there are, there are a lot of questions that come up. So these are real-life questions, and these are sensitive questions and painful questions. And, uh, and, and that is really what we're going to explore today, a Jewish framework to, to making sense of these, of these types of questions. Okay, so uh, number one, when it comes to, so, so let's jump into this. When it comes to life and death questions, because that's really what we're talking about today, life and death, um, certainly a big piece of this is defining what life is, when life starts, when life, when life ends. These are not easy questions. Next week's class is about beginning of life questions, and we'll touch on the question regarding abortion, etc. So that's next week's session. Uh, but the question about life is something that is debated or discussed, at least discussed, in many different circles. In fact, in 1968, um, there, was a, there was a committee that gathered, that convened in Harvard. Um, it was known as the Ad Hoc Committee to Examine the Definition of Brain Death. And this took place in... Uh, 1968 at Harvard University. There were individuals, experts from different disciplines. Certainly the medical community got together as well as ethicists. They got together to examine the question, when does life end? And one of the stated goals for this, for this definition, was vis-a-vis organ donation. So there there are certain organs that are only viable 
for transplantation as long as the heart of the donor is still beating. So certain organs can only be harvested from an individual whose heart is still beating. The ethical question is, can you take an organ out of a person whose heart is still beating even to save another life? But by pulling out this organ, let's say a heart transplant, you're pulling a beating heart out of one person to put it in someone else. No doctor, no doctor worth their Hippocratic oath would ever say that you're allowed to kill one patient, literally kill one patient to save another patient. No one would do it. So how do we have heart transplants? Herein comes the definition of brain death. What is brain death? Brain death is where medically there is no longer any, and we can, we can measure this, there's no longer any brain function. The heart can, is still beating, right? The heart can still be beating by, by virtue of machines, etc. So the heart can still be beating, the brain is considered to no not considered, the brain is no longer functioning. So the question is, and this is what the doctors convened in 1968 to define and to codify is, can we say medically that brain death is a valid definition of death? If we say that, that it is, then we can ethically and morally pull out a beating heart from one patient and put it into the, does that make sense? If brain death is not death, then it means you're killing one patient to save another, which no one would do. But if we consider brain death to be a valid definition of death, then we can pull out the heart or the lungs or another vital organ and put it into someone else. This was the origins of the definition of brain death, which really opened up the possibility for, for, for core organ donation. Take a look at what one of the doctors said after this uh, this this convening of minds, text one. Only a very bold man, I think, would attempt to define death. I was chairman of a recent ad hoc committee at Harvard composed of members of five faculties in the university who tried to define irreversible coma. We felt we could not define death. I suppose you will say that by implication we have defined it as brain death, but we did not make a point of that. It's interesting how he says, you know, we did define brain death as a valid I don't know, a valid definition of death, but he's saying in general we were not defining death, just a functional definition of death. I think he's trying to straddle the line between, you know, um, confidently saying what is life and what is death versus saying what we will be morally, ethically, medically comfortable with doing to save another patient's life. Does this make sense? Yeah? Okay. So the point is that there is this, you know, when it comes to life and death, there is a bit of an elusive definition of life and of death, which leads us to some, uh, some really powerful and really um, emotional uh, um, um, situations. And, and one case study that we can look at happened in 1990. And this is text number two. So many of you may be familiar with the story of Nancy Cruzan, and uh, it, was, it was big news in 1990, and we're going to read about it right here. Text number two. 
At 2.47 a.m. on December 26, 1990, 12 days after doctors in a Missouri state hospital removed her feeding tube, the life of 33-year-old Nancy, welcome, Nancy Cruzan came to an end. For nearly eight years, she had existed in a state of persistent veget uh, vegetative coma, the result of injuries sustained when her car careened off a dark country road in rural southwestern Missouri. The decision to remove her from life support was made by her family and voiced by her father, Joe Cruzan. It was a wrenching choice, made only when all hope for recovery was extinguished. But the decision, it turns out, was only the beginning. For when the Cruzan family requested in May of 1987 that Nancy's life support be removed, doctors refused. You hear this? The family says, our daughter is gone. She's in a persistent state of vegetative, persistent ve vegetative coma. She's not coming out of it, right? There's no hope for recovery. They asked that her life support be removed. The doctors in the hospital refused. And when in 1990 her body was at last allowed to pass from life, the action was the culmination of a long and painful struggle, one that followed a path through the bastions of the U.S. legal system against fierce and powerful opposition including Missouri Governor John Ashcroft and U.S. Solicitor General Kenneth Starr. Blast from the past with these names, huh? Ultimately, the Cruzan case became the first right-to-die argument ever heard by the United States Supreme Court. And we know what the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in this case, that indeed, she did have the right to die. Her family did have the right to remove her, to request that the hospital removed from life support, and the hospital would have to abide by those wishes. What I find fascinating about this, obviously this is a, this is a, a, a gut-wrenching uh, story, a real-life gut-wrenching story. Um, what I find fascinating is that here you have the family who comes to the hospital. They say, Please allow our daughter to pass away. She's not coming back. Like our daughter to pass. And the hospital, the doctors for at least three years, told the family, no, we're not going to do it. Why? Because it's against our ethical code. We don't feel that we can pull her off life support effective. That would be us killing her, taking a life. And it went through all of the, it went through level after level after level of the U.S. court system until it got to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled that indeed there is a right to die. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting is that from, and again, just to circle back to this, to, to, to the way we're framing this, in the United States, which is based on a, which is a, um, a, a governance, a, a system of, a society that's based on a system of rights, right? So right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? The right to life also translates into the right to die, or at least perhaps should, which leads directly into the question of, well, in this case, pulling someone, to, removing someone from life support, then the next question would be, what about physician-assisted suicide? Or the way it's referred to today, dying with dignity, right? So not all states 
have that the law allowing physician assisted suicide. Who was the doctor, the famous doctor that was um, assisting? Dr. Kavokian. Kavorkian, right, Kavorkian, right. Did he get, did he get thrown in jail? No, did he not? He did go to jail. He did, he went to jail. Okay, so we see here even an evolution within a system of rights. The question is, how far do those rights extend? Because if you have, again, think about it. If you have a right to life, if I have a right to my own life, well then, doesn't that translate into a, a right to determine when the end should be as well? But then the question is, can I get someone else to help me with that legally? Are they allowed to help in a medical situation? There was a case a few years ago of a young woman who was suffering with terminal cancer, and she was very public about her, her choice and her decision to end her life um, on her terms. Um, and and she, you know, she blogged extensively about it, and there was a lot of press about it, and she determined the date and the time and the exact manner of her, of her passing, and, and that was her way of, of owning her life and owning her death. And so in a system of rights, this certainly follows. It certainly makes sense that the right to life would translate into the right to death. It's, again, it's fascinating to me that the, the, the doctors in Missouri um, you know, were, were so opposed to it. They felt that it was against their ethical code, against their Hippocratic Oath, perhaps, against the, the, the values and the ethics and the morals of the hospital to remove someone from life support and effectively, essentially, take their life. So these are, you know, these are the questions that come up this is not, these are not isolated questions. I mean, these are, these are real life questions. Um, and they have raised concerns. Text three and four will be some concerns raised by some rabbis. We're not, we're not yet, I haven't yet um, presented the Jewish perspective on this. We're just kind of discussing, you know, the, the questions about all this and, and, the, and the case studies. Um, but here are some concerns that at least one rabbi has raised um, about the... Um, about the, the right to die and what that might lead to, what that might lead to. Text number three, page 26. The watchword of the death with dignity movement is autonomy or self-determination. Like we mentioned before, the big, right, the, the big thing in medical, when it comes to med medicine, is, is the patient autonomy and self-determination. All well and good. What proponents of autonomy fail to realize, however, more ominously what they realize and fail to express, is that as formerly unspeakable options become widely available, there is a tremendous societal pressure to have them exercised. So this rabbi wants to argue, and again, it, I don't know that I, I agree with everything that he writes here, but it's an interesting take, or at least it's important to, to look at, 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 at you know, a various, you know, at a spectrum of ideas. What this rabbi is saying is, when that becomes an option, how do we safeguard against people being pressured to exercise that option, right? If someone is deemed to be a burden on society, right, or draining resources because they're just being kept alive, but maybe they want to be kept alive, but maybe now, etc. Let's continue. If and when assisted suicides become legalized and socially acceptable, one could easily visualize scenarios where persons who truly would want to live given the chance and the encouragement will instead opt for death, viewing their lives as worthless, non-productive, and a drain on their families. Subtly or explicitly, societal consensus will push people into directions, which on their own would have remained off limits. What starts off as a right to die 
quickly turns into an obligation. Again, I take a step back. Not everything, you know, we can't always go down the, the slippery slope route and say, this is going to lead to this, and it's doom and gloom. But again, this is just one, one perception of this, perhaps. Rather than, ex, than enhancing autonomy and self-respect, the Derek Humphrey Kevorkian approach uh, does precisely the opposite, ultimately debasing the sanctity of the individual and the meaning of his existence. Judaism, which values and cherishes all life, inescapably proceeds from the opposite premise, life is regarded as a sacred trust given to us by God, and only God can take it away. As the great Talmudic sage Rabbi Hanina ben Trajon was, burnt, was being burned at the stake by the Romans for the crime of teaching Torah and was suffering excruciating pain, his students urged him to open his mouth and let the flames enter so that he could die more quickly. He responded, let he who gave me life take it. So here's a Talmudic story of a rabbi who refused to hasten his own demise even by pain of suffering. And so he's trying, this author, Rabbi Breitowitz, is trying to bring out that this is a Jewish value of preserving life and, and not running to take it even in, even in situations that might be painful. Again, this is one perspective. Text number four, we have a, um, uh, a, a, the same author is writing about the value of life. Once we start making judgments as to which lives are worth living, and which are not, once we assign value to people because of what they can do instead of what they are, we have demeaned the intrinsic sanctity of existence for all human beings and have embarked on a dangerous exercise of line drawing. What about the elderly? What about the severely retarded? What about the handicapped? Are they any less human because their productivity is impaired? By the way, just to, 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 to mention, um, this, text, this text was written uh, some decades ago, hence some terms that we wouldn't use today, um, and, uh, and just, just as a disclaimer. So he's writing essentially that there is a danger in viewing life in utilitarian, um, in a utilitarian way. Like what's the value of life based on productivity, based on what can be done. You know, if somebody, if somebody is deemed like they can't do something or can't be productive, then perhaps they should be pressured into uh, their life, their life ending, or maybe they themselves see their lives as less valuable. That's a dangerous path. We know famously um, in, in ancient Roman civilization, someone that was born with a handicap or some other, you know, some other, so they would they would they would murder the, the child. They they would you know they would they would take the life of of the child or the the infirm, and and that's not something that we as a society at this point as we've evolved. And our ethics hopefully have, 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 uh, have evolved as well. That's not something that we accept today. And the, the concern that this rabbi is raising is, well, what starts off as a right, which sounds very honorable, like let the person determine their own right, how, how does that, what happens next? How does that evolve? And maybe that evolves into there being a little subtle pressure. You know, if the quality of life is not there, then maybe the life should be ended. Maybe that person should be pressured, whether overtly or subvertly, into ending or consenting to end their life. And thus, we have now come full circle back to a space where society is valuing some lives and devaluing others to a, uh, to a, in, in a very life and death uh, uh, way. So this is, again, the way this rabbi is kind of positioning it as a, a bit of a, of a question and a cautionary, uh, um, uh, you know, some cautionary thoughts. But let, now let me pause. I've done a lot of talking the last few minutes. Any thoughts on these texts? Questions, comments, thoughts? 
Masada. Yeah. How do we you're saying how do we reconcile Masada? So let me explain. So let me let me just make sure we're all on the same page. Masada was Right. Not to expedite ones. So let me explain Masada for those that may not be familiar with the history. Masada was the last Jewish stronghold in the Holy Land after the, the destruction of the Second Holy Temple in the year 69. This was, I think, a few years later, two, three, four years later. Um, and there was a mountaintop fortress called Masada where there were, I think, a little under a thousand Jews, men, women, and children, that were, um, there was a fortress, it was very hard to get up, and it was well protected. And, uh, and, and they, were, they were holding out over there. When, when Jerusalem was ransacked, and people were, and Jews were murdered and, and exiled, so they remained and they were, they were holding up. Well, at some point the Romans turned their attention, the Romans were brutal, the Romans turned their attention, they built ramps, the, the mountaintop was so high, but they built a ramp that was more gradual so they can bring up a battering ram. They literally built, it took them a long time to build a, a more of a level ramp up the mountain. They got the battering rams up. They were battering the walls and the walls were going to break. So the Jews on Masada, they built, they built an extra wall behind the brick wall. They, built a, they put wood, earth, and wood so that it would be more um, resilient. Well, when the Romans realized that there, was, that there was wood there, they began to torch it. And the fires burned, and now they were encircled in flames. The leader, the leader of Masada got up that night. It was, it was burning at night. And he said, essentially, they're not going to get us alive. Let's take our own lives. And everyone essentially committed. I mean, they, the adults took the lives of the children, and then the women, and then the men. And that, was, and that was it. They all, they all perished. A few, I believe, there were a few that survived that lived to tell the tale of Masada. But your question is a very good question. How do we reconcile the expediting one's death on one's own terms so as not to fall in the hands of the enemy that happened at Masada with this seemingly Jewish value or Talmudic story of the rabbi refusing to expedite his own death even while suffering at the hands of his, uh, of his torturers? That's a good question. Now that I've explained the question, <laughs> I'll turn to you. No, no, don't be serious. It's a great question. But now that I've explained the question, I will say, I don't know that I have a good answer. It's a very good question. I don't know that we can... The, the, the thousand could have killed, died fighting the 15,000 Romans. Yeah. But they chose... They chose, right. And, and, and I, I, I... So I don't know. I can only tell you, we only know historically what they decided, what they chose. I also don't know that I, I don't feel justified to, to judge or to justify. I, who, who can judge in that moment? Who can stand, you know, thousands, two thousand years later and, and, and apply judgment to what people did in that situation? I wasn't there. I wasn't, you know, it, so it's hard for me to fit, but it's a great question, especially because today Masada is seen to be this symbol of Jewish Heroism, and and you know when when there's certain when certain divisions in the Israeli army, upon their graduation, they go up to Masada, and they basically say, "Never again are we gonna are we gonna be in the weak position? We're gonna be the strong position." So it is an interesting it is an interesting dynamic. It's become a symbol of of um, of of heroism. 
But it's a, it's a great question. Yeah, I don't have an answer, but it's a great, I, I like the question. I like the question better than any answer that I can give. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yes. I have another question. Sure. The, the young woman that was in the vegetative state. Yes. The, was she brain dead or, or, you know, how are they keeping her alive? Yeah, I believe that she was, my understanding, my recollection of the story, I haven't looked it up recently, is that Nancy Cruzan was um, clinically brain dead and she was being kept alive, she was, she was being kept going by life support. And life support can keep the body, the heart pumping, et cetera, and the organs kind of functioning even without active brain activity. That's the, um, that's the power of the, of, the, of, the, of the medical technology that we have. Um, and so, so the family basically, you know, after consulting with their experts, she's, never, she's not going to come back. So why are we just extending and prolonging, you know, this state of, of, of life? And the doctor said, we don't want to pull, we don't want to pull her off the machines because that, that means that we're complicit in her death and her passing. And we don't want to do that. We don't want that on our hands. And it literally took the courts to weigh in on this and to, to allow the family to do this. So, and that's, there's nothing easy about this question. If it was an easy question, it wouldn't have been a question. Right? It wouldn't have gone all the way to the Supreme Court. It wouldn't have, 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 have created such a, such a fierce and intense conversation and debate. So clearly, and this, so I, I think what's powerful about that case, and thanks for bringing it back up, is that it's, this is not exclusively a Jewish question. This is a human question. And hopefully we'll share today some Jewish perspective on the question, but this is not, this is not a, you know, from the perspective of Jewish values, then what do you, this is a human question. What do we do? How, uh, what's the preferred way of, of, of you know, figuring this out? Yeah. Well, I just want to mention that uh, there are lots of instances, because we're not clinically knowledgeable enough about people who are presumed to be brain, brain dead that wake up. Right. Could be that perhaps somebody is, is deemed to be a certain, in a certain state. And my understanding, though, is that there are different uh, grades of, of clinical brain death. And the one, my understanding is that there's, you know, the, the most severe form that no one's ever come back from that one. People have come out of comas, even severe comas, but clinical brain death of like full cessation of what, but I think your point is, you know, I, I, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm putting some words in your mouth, but maybe, you know, the question would be the machines that we have to test the brain activity you know, maybe there's other machinery. More set. Maybe we will find one day that there is some sort of something, and that might be a, a, an open question, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe that might be right. And so that might be, again, and all of, and that point is all part of this larger conversation. And I'm not. I'm. I'm really trying to be neutral in the conversation and present all of the sides because I think that it's an important question, and it's not a hypothetical question. It's not a theoretical question. End of life issues. Again. I, I can speak from my personal experience. As a family, we, we've dealt with this as a family, with, with, with a loved one. And, and these questions come up, and difficult questions come up, questions in which you feel like it's an impossible choice. Like both choices are not ideal choices. You have to make a choice. And so the question is, is there some guidance? So I want to share a few ideas that I think might be, might be helpful, at least from you know, to get a Jewish perspective on this. And 
Um, I want to begin with the idea that I think I started expressing last week, but I think is important to, to reiterate. You know, when, when speaking about a system of responsibilities versus rights, one thing that comes up is the question regarding life itself. You know, we spoke last week about a responsibility to life. That is really predicated on the following idea. And I, again, I think I mentioned this last week, but I want to make sure that it's clear this week. From the Jewish perspective, life is not ours. It is rather a gift that has been given to us on trust, which is why in Jewish law, for example, one is not permitted to harm oneself intentionally, um, like self-mutilation or something else, other, other self-harm, one is not permitted to do so. Not only is the soul considered to be a gift from above, but even the body is not considered to be our own. Um, and this has some practical ramifications. So for example, um, in Jewish law, the family of a murder victim cannot absolve the murderer, but rather has to pursue justice. It doesn't mean that one has to carry hate in one's heart. Certainly carrying hate is, you know, psychologically, emotionally not healthy. It's, it's you know, it, it, one, the family certainly can come to a place where they are um, at peace with themselves and, and, and accepting of what happened, uh, you know, understanding that they cannot change it. But the idea to not pursue justice is not allowed because life, if life is not our own, then, then when life is taken, in the case of murder, one has to pursue justice, not necessarily, not only on one's own behalf or one's loved one's behalf, behalf but because it's, it's, it's on, on the divine behalf almost. Um, there's another, another interesting law that in Jewish law that says that one cannot self-incriminate in capital cases. It's a very, very interesting law. So if, um, if someone is accused of murder and they admit to the murder, again, in Jewish law, there is the possibility of capital punishment. They are not eligible for capital punishment based on their own admission. Why? Because that would be essentially them taking their own lives based on their own testimony. Now, you can lock them up, whatever, you do other things, but to apply capital punishment based on their own testimony, that would not be allowed. By the way, as a, uh, an, uh, I don't know if it's an unintended consequence, but a consequence of this is to, um, to, uh, to de-incentivize torture to gain confessions. Because if you can't use the confession anyway to the ultimate, to the ultimate point, then you're kind of de-incentivizing that, which gets into criminal justice reform and pressure tactics, but that's another, that's another conversation. Um, but the idea of, of, not, of, of, of our life not being our, ours and the idea of not self-harming is a very strong idea in, um, in, in Judaism. Now, one thing that I feel is... No, so text 5 we already read, essentially. Text 5 is where the rabbi, we said this, Rabbi Chanina, was um, refusing to open his mouth or to expedite, expedite his, uh, expedite his, own, his own passing the idea of not engaging in self-harm. There's another value in Judaism that I think is also relevant to our conversation, which is that every moment of life has infinite value. Um, as Rabbi Breitowitz mentioned before, life is not defined 
in, in Judaism in, utilitarian, uh, uh, um, in a utilitarian way, but rather by how productive life is, so-called productive, but rather by the actual uh, um, value of life itself. And a powerful reading that highlights this is text number six. This is going to be a, an uncomfortable reading, I will tell you at the outset. This is an uncomfortable reading because it's a, it, it describes something horrific. Um, but it's not necessarily a real-life case. This is just kind of expressing uh, the way Jewish law and ethics looks at, uh, looks at life. Take a look at text 6. Rabbah said, and I'm, I'm going to read it and then I'm going to break this down. If someone threw a vase, or a vase, depending on how you pronounce it. I'll go with vase. If someone threw a vase from a rooftop and another person smashed it in midair. So imagine, right? Someone sta- it's not their own vase. Someone takes someone else's vase, goes up to the roof, and throws it down. By all accounts, it is going to smash to smithereens. Well, now you have, so that's person A. Person A steals a vase and throws it down from the top of the roof. Person B happens to be standing there with a baseball bat. He sees something coming his way, and he's looking for some practice. Smashes it out of the air. Who's liable for who's on the hook to pay for the vase? The thrower or the smasher? Take a look at what Rabbi says. He says, if, the, if the, someone threw a vase from the rooftop, another person smashed it in midair, the first one is liable for the damage and not the person who smashed it. Why? For he had smashed a broken vessel. In other words, the moment it was thrown, it was already broken. Legally, it was deemed to have been broken. The fact that the guy broke it in midair before it smashed, that didn't actually break it. He broke a broken vessel. Does that make sense? You see the logic, the legal logic? Yeah. It's like, imagine the guy throws it down and it breaks. And then somebody else comes and steps on it. Is he liable for stepping on it? It's already broken. So Rabbah says the same thing is true. Even if it didn't hit the ground yet, the guy hit it in midair. He's not liable. The guy who threw it is liable. Why? Because it was already broken. Next case. Here's where it gets a little uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. Rabbah also said, if someone threw an infant from a rooftop and another person killed it with his sword in midair, it is considered some form of murder. There's a debate between Rabbi Yehud and the sages as to whether the person that actually killed the infant is subject to death penalty. But the point that Rabbi is making is, who's liable for murder in this case? The second guy, not the first guy. Maybe the first guy also. But the second guy is liable for murder. Different than the vase. Why? So the commentaries struggle with this. The commentaries try to, I mean, clearly, the, what Rabbi, the name of the Rabbi, what he's trying to tell us is that there's a difference between human life, and objects. What's the difference? What's the value of a vase? The value of a vase is in its utility. If I have a vase that's holding flowers, so it's valuable as long as it can hold flowers. A vase flying through the air, hurtling through the air, about to smash into the ground, has value? You go try to sell that on eBay. Put that on eBay. I have a vase hurtling through the air, about to smash on the ground, opening bid, 50 bucks. Who's bidding on that? Why? It's a doomed vessel. It has no value. It has no utility. But what about human life? 
even human life that is clearly on its way to ending. Human life is not utilitarian in Jewish law. Human life is not measured by how much can be done or what productivity can be found in this moment, in this time. Human life is valuable because it is essentially valuable, because it's divine. In this moment, it has power, it has value, irrespective of what is, be, is happening, is do, irrespective of the utility, it has value. That's why we don't say in this hor- horrific second scenario that the person who takes the life of the infant in midair is murdering a murdered person already. We say, no, as long as there's still life, taking that life at this point, expediting it, is an act of some form of murder. Does that make sense? There's a difference between human beings and objects. Humans are not objects. To objectify a human being, in all the meanings of that, of that phrase, is immoral. And, 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 and the antithesis of what Judaism teaches about human life. Human life is not valuable insofar as what a person can do or how much they can think or how much time they have left. This is reflected in a powerful law, text 7. Listen to this. Text 7, I'll give you a quick intro on this. Text 7 deals with the laws of Shabbat. As many of you may know, on Shabbat, there are certain forms of labor that one does not do. And part of the forms of labor that one is not to do on the, on the, on the Sabbath is excavating. It's part of building. We don't build, we don't excavate. So that's one of the things that, that, that's not done. But what if a building collapses on someone? What if there are people under the rubble? Do you excavate? Absolutely. Why? Because you suspend all laws to save a life. To save a life, everything else is... Remember the buildings in, in uh, Bell Harbor? Bell Harbor a few years ago? Remember the tower? Sorry, not the buildings. The tower collapsed. Horrific. Horrific. I know people who had relatives there. whose parents were there. Text 7. Here's how the Talmud... Sorry, here's how the Code of Jewish Law puts it. A danger to life suspends all the laws of the Sabbath. And the more a person acts with alacrity in this regard, the more praiseworthy that person is. So again, you might have uh, rules and regulations about the Sabbath, but when it's a question of life and death, you put away the laws, throw away the laws, save that life. For example, if a building collapsed on top of a person, even if there's a doubt whether he is alive or dead, you don't know or whether he's even under the rubble or not. You don't know if anyone's there. God forbid a building collapses. You don't know if anyone's there or not. Do you excavate or not? What do you think? Absolutely, even if it's a question. For the Torah declares... So, sorry, the answer, so one must dig through the rubble to try, and, to try and find them. For the Torah declares, you shall live by them, the laws of the Torah. In other words, when the, Torah, when the Bible, when the Torah gives its laws, it says that you should live by them, i.e., these are meant to live with, not to die with. Don't die on behalf of the law. Live with the law. Even Let's continue. Even, this is where it gets relevant to our conversation today. Even if one finds the person crushed so that he cannot live for more than a short while, the rubble must be removed. If there is any life in him at all, we remove him from the rubble, even for a few moments of life, which means that we don't view life 
in utilitarian purposes. We don't reduce people to objects. We don't reduce people to vases. How, much, how many flowers can you hold? Right? Will you hold the water that I pour in or is it going to leak out? If it leaks out, then I have no use for you anymore. That's not how we view human beings. We don't view human beings in utilitarian terms. Even if the person is dying because they were, because they were crushed by the building, you do everything you can to keep on removing the rubble. To keep, not necessarily because you think that you're going to save their life and, and heal them, but just in the context of preserving even more moments of life. Text number eight. Here we have some, a very interesting and important Jewish law regarding end-of-life uh, care. And in, in Jewish law, we make every effort not to um, do something to disturb uh, the person who is on their deathbed, as it were. Um, even the idea of crying by one's deathbed, which could make them frightened and might shorten their life, we try to avoid. Obviously, we can't always avoid our emotions and crying, but to try to not make them feel sad, to try to not do anything or disturb their body in any way to bring about a hastening of death. Text number 8, page 31, Rabbi Meir would say, this is compared to a flickering candle that is extinguished as soon as a person touches it. Likewise, whoever closes the eyes of a dying person is considered to have taken his soul, even close, before they passed away, closing their eyes, before they passed away, is considered to even hastening for one moment is considered problematic. And why is this? Why is this text number nine? We have a verse from Proverbs, the soul of man is, the, is a candle of God. So here we have this idea that the soul, or the, yeah, the soul, the life of a person is like a candle. A candle provides light and illumination. And what that means is that as long as a person is alive, their soul is, their soul is here and their soul is on some level shining some sort of at least spiritual light. So even if on a bodily level, they might not, we might say that their, you know, their quality of life is not there or they can't do this, that, or the other, but as long as the soul is there, the soul is there. Now, let's use all of this information. You know, what we've done over the last maybe 15 minutes or so, 15, 20 minutes, is go through this topic from a Jewish perspective, the topic about the sanctity of life from a uniquely Jewish and Talmudic perspective. But the question is, on a practical level, how do we apply that to end-of-life questions? How do we apply that to our two case studies? Case study one, now you have a person who's, let's say, a terminal cancer patient who is in tremendous pain, and the doctors want to administer morphine. That was case study one. But the doctors have noted that administering morphine could hasten uh, a person's, you know, could shorten a person's life. So now we have, we just bumped into what we talked about, which is you can't do anything to shorten a person's life. But what about if it's to try to help them alleviate the pain? So now you have these conflicting values. So quality of life versus length of life. So how do we, how do we work with this? What's fascinating is the Talmud dealt with this 1,500 years ago. 1,500 years ago, the Talmud tells us a story about exactly this question. Take a look at text 10a. This story takes place with one of the greatest rabbis of his generation. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, this is, sorry, I'm sorry, this is not 1,500 years ago. This is something more like 17 or 1,800 years ago. This is uh, on page, well, the English is on page 33, text 10a. On the day that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, was to die, 
His disciple, uh, the rabbis, his disciples declared a fast and announced, let anyone who says that he has died be pierced with a sword. In other words, they were trying to do everything in their power, spiritually, whatever, to try to prolong their rabbis, their beloved rabbi's life. The rabbi's maidservant, went out, who was very learned, There's, the Talmud discusses at length how she was a scholar. She was like the, the, the help in the house, but she had been around him for so many years that she knew more than, than some, of the, some of the scholars. So the rabbi's maidservant went up to the attic and prayed. And this is what she said. Those on high, the angels, want our rabbi. And those below, the other rabbis, also want a rabbi. May it be your will, she said to God, that those below overcome those above. In the struggle for his life, right, for his soul, between heaven and earth, may earth prevail, may he remain alive. That's what she prayed. But when she saw that he was constantly going to the bathroom, he had a disease of, his, of the intestines, according to the commentaries, and he had to remove his tefillin and then put them on again, which was causing him great pain, Essentially, basically, when she saw that he was in tremendous pain and suffering, she said, may it be your will, she said a new prayer. She said to God, may it be your will that those above overcome those below. But when the rabbis did not cease begging for mercy for Rabbi Yehuda, so that a soul could not leave him, she took, unrelated to the case study before, she took a clay vessel and threw it down from the attic to the ground. The rabbis stopped their prayers momentarily. When they heard the crash, they stopped praying momentarily, and his soul departed. When faced with the question, you know, when faced with the question, you know, do we do something to expedite someone's passing to alleviate their suffering? We see here from this story that that's exactly what she did. We don't find that she was criticized for this. Certainly the rabbis wanted their beloved teacher to remain alive forever. Who doesn't want someone they love to live forever? But the reality of life is not like that. It's not always like It hasn't been like that. People do, do not live forever. And so then the question is, how do we balance the pain with the quality of life, with the length of life? Here we have a story where there was this debate almost, not really a debate, but the struggle between heaven and earth, between the rabbis and unbeknownst to them, the maidservant, and she prevailed in this situation. And again, she's not criticized or chastised. The Talmud seems to say this as a story as kind of a lesson, which is that even when we would love for our loved ones to live forever, at some point in ministering um, something, certainly with the intention to alleviate their pain and suffering, not necessarily the, in the intention to take their life, but certainly in the case of the morphine, which is to alleviate suffering, that seems to be not problematic. Um, let's continue. Let's continue with a text B. We're going to skip. Text 11. Text 11. And here we have an answer to the second case study. So I just, we, we use text 10A to address the first case study. So if the question is, can one administer morphine to a patient? The, the doctor at this hospital, the chief uh, um, uh, the chief doctor is asking the rabbi in Israel, can we continue to administer morphine to terminally ill cancer patients knowing that, or at least believing that this morphine might also shorten their life? It seems that the answer is yes. Because even though Judaism uh, um, talks about the value of life and, and every moment of life, but number one, the intention is not to take their life. The intention is to alleviate the suffering. Alleviating the suffering is a positive thing. And, um, and indeed, 
So that is, that is something that, that, that should be allowed. Text number 11. Here, Rabbi Feinstein deals with the second question. If you remember, the second case study was regarding should, should the hospital, should the doctor do additional procedures not, that won't cure the terminal illness, but will we'll just keep the person alive longer, but will also keep them alive longer with their pain and suffering. So text number 11, Rabbi Feinstein weighs in. If the doctors do not know of a cure for the patient's illness, nor of a means to reduce the person's pain, but merely know of a means to prolong his life of suffering, they should not apply these means. The case that I mentioned before, someone who is dying and the doctors say, you know, their heart is failing. Well, we can do CPR, you know, to, to give them a little bit longer, but they're still not going to live. They're still not going to live much longer. It's going to create tremendous pain, etc. He's saying, clearly, one does not need to do something to, I'm going to use a, maybe a, a strong phrase here, but artificially extend a person's life beyond when they would normally die if there's no hope for a cure or for an end of the pain. Let's continue. If a person who is terminally ill contracts a second illness for which there is a cure, it is obligatory to heal him from the second illness. Certainly, right, if someone has a secondary illness, we should, we should heal that. However, that's, in, that's generally. However, if he's suffering and there is no known cure for the first, first illness, nor is there a means to relieve him of his pain and suffering, it is sometimes preferable for a person to die than to live under such circumstances, and it is probable that we are not obligated to prolong his life. Before putting someone on life support, this is really saying the question we need to ask, we, one way to understand the implications of this is ask the question to the doctors. Putting the person on life, because the natural reaction of many people, not everybody, I don't know the percentage, the natural reaction of many people is to say, let's do everything in our power to keep our loved one alive. Okay, but one second. You hooked them up to a machine, but now what? Are they going to, is there a cure? Is there a way to alleviate suffering? What is, what is the end game? And that's a tremendously difficult question to think about. But it's something that the rabbi here is essentially saying, you could do something to prolong life, but if it's prolonging life and prolonging suffering with no end in sight, with no cure in sight, then there might not be, I'm going to use a loose term here, there might not be a mitzvah to do that. Text 12. Here is the rabbi weighing in on the first case study. Since the suffering involving our case can be extremely difficult to tolerate, it would seem that one must have pity on the patient and reduce his suffering with the morphine, especially in light of the fact that the suffering may cause to hasten his death even more than the pain medication. That's what the rabbi argues. So, what we've seen with the, the discussion today is that although Judaism looks at life, excuse me, although Judaism looks at life as... Um, as a responsibility. We have a responsibility to life. But nonetheless, we also have the responsibility for the dignity and 
the, uh, the wellness of every individual, including ourselves and our loved ones. And that means sometimes to make the decisions that are based not solely on the question of, is there going to be extended life with this procedure? Or is life going to be shortened, perhaps, by this pain medication, but also looking at the quality of life question? And that becomes very important. I want to conclude with text 13, the final text over here, which is a good meditation to remind us about the value of life. Because certainly that's something that we're speaking about, the value of life, and taking in in different considerations. Um, Life is valuable. Text 13 speaks to that. Not a single moment in a person's life is extra. You ever hear the expression, killing time? I had some time to kill. Not a single moment in a person's life is extra. Each person is given a particular number of days, hours, and seconds for accomplishing his or her divine mission in life. And so the idea here is to not take life for granted. As long as we have the opportunity to breathe and to, uh, to be alive, we should be appreciative and grateful for that and, um, and try our best to fill that with meaningful experiences and positivity. I'll conclude with, um, with a beautiful analogy I once heard. You know, Forrest Gump, remember Forrest Gump? Life is like a box of chocolates. Well, there's another one. It says, life is like a picture postcard. What's a postcard? First of all, the kids today have no idea. You say postcard, they're like, what's a postcard? My, my son was going to a friend's house for like, you know, uh, yesterday to, to, to play, to have a play date. So I tell him on his way out, I'm like, don't forget to write as a joke. Like, don't forget to write. He's gone for like an hour or two. He's like, what, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, way too complicated. Back in the day when people would go, they would write letters to each other. He's like, all right, what, what, what does that even mean? But anyway, so life is like a picture postcard. Remember that? You would go on vacation. You want to send your family, maybe your parents. You want to send like a postcard. And you wouldn't know what to write. So you would, there was a beautiful postcard on the other side. You would start with like a lar- large letters. Dear mom and dad, comma, how are you? Everything is great here. And you would, you would start, you wouldn't really know what to write. So you're writing in like large letters. But as you started writing, you thought of more things. And then you start realizing, oh, you got to cram more information. So the font, the letter size, the, right, the actual, your writing becomes smaller and smaller. And then you find yourself writing toward the bottom, the very bottom. You can't even make your G's because the G doesn't go because you're now off the card. And then you find yourself wrapping around the side and making a bit of an arrow to, to direct you know, your parents to where they should read next. Life is like a picture postcard. When we're young... We have all the time in the world, right? It's like, get all the time. As we get older, we realize, right? As we, get cl- as we realize how precious life is and we see, the, we see the space of the postcard, of the card, you know, we see, find ourselves getting closer to the edge. We, we realize that there's, there's more and more to do and, more, and we should continue to be active and continue to be, to be productive and continue to find every opportunity to, to, to to create light and beautiful moments in our lives and the lives of our friends and loved ones. And indeed, may everyone be blessed with good health and blessings and nachas. You know what nachas is? Nachas is joy and pride from the family and um, blessings for everybody for a happy and healthy week. Thank you very much for joining me today for lesson two of Tamurk Ethics. Um, I'm certainly, uh, uh, we can certainly take questions or comments, discussions, conversations about this topic. Um, 
Today, again, was a little bit of a heavier topic. Trust me, we will have lighter topics as we go through. They're not all so heavy. However, next week's topic is one of the other heavier topics, which is about beginning of life and the question about abortion. And certainly, recently, that has once again come into focus in a very strong and serious way. And that is, it's a very important topic to speak about and certainly to get a Jewish perspective on. Um, and one thing I hope you're noticing from our conversations is that when we talk about a Jewish perspective on, there's nothing, you know, especially when it comes to like medical ethics, there's nothing, I think the right, right way to say this would be equivocal. There's no hard and fast rule. We have values and teachings and principles that can then be applied to different scenarios. In fact, if you were to ask, let's say a rabbi, hey rabbi, um, you know, what's, what does Judaism say about end of life X, Y, or Z? Any rabbi that's knowledgeable would say there's no one answer. Every case, every scenario needs to be explored and looked at. Just like with the doctor, no doctor can say, well, this is the diagnosis in every case like this. It's not, it's not possible. Every specific scenario is unique and different. So the goal here in this course is not to tell you anything you know, definitively about any specific case, but rather to give you some ideas to think about as we, as we navigate life and, and obviously the difficult questions that life brings. Again, thank you very much, and I hope you, uh, you found it meaningful. Who compiles these texts? So this is, so this is compiled. Pleasure, pleasure. This is, this is part of the curriculum of the Jewish Learning Institute. Um, the JLI courses. We've done, we've done many courses together where, with the textbooks. For this course, we just, we're just doing the printouts. Um, but yeah, this is from the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. They're based in Brooklyn. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. They have great bagels also. <laughs> <laughs> they do actually have great bagels. By the way, sometimes we get in bagels from Brooklyn that come par-baked. Basically, like the bakery makes them, they bake them partially a little bit, and then they freeze them, and then they're ship frozen, and then you bake them and finish them off in your own oven, which is great, because that's a great way to get kosher bagels. You get them from New York. But there's one supplier that we sometimes get um, for you know, various things that we do, functions. Uh, the company is, the wholesaler is called Davidovich. It's the name, Davidovich. You, you won't believe this. Anybody from New York here? Any New Yorkers? New Yorkers? Some New Yorkers? Okay. So... All right, so it says literally on the box of the Vitovich bagels, it says this, this is, and it's in quotation marks. Every bagel wishes it was a Davidovich bagel. <laughs> I'm like, how Brooklyn do you get? Like, how New York is that? You wish you were a Davidovich bagel. Every bagel wishes the... Anyway, classic. A lot of confidence in those bagels. They are very good bagels. Anyway, um, good. Questions, comments? All right. We will get to lighter topics <laughs> at some point soon. Um, all right. Well, I look forward to seeing everyone next week, as I said, in good health. And uh, have a wonderful day. Rabbi. Yes. One question. You yes. Can you go back to the, uh, the woman who was on life support. Yes. Nancy Cruzan. So what would the Jewish perspective be on that? That's a great question. That's a very, it's a great question, and it's a very difficult question to answer. The reason why it's a difficult question to answer is because it is a specific case. So we can talk about the principles and get an idea, 
But when it comes to, and we can even speak generally about morphine and about, you know, um, life prolonging procedures that won't address the actual, you know, the core illness. But the question is about bottom line, Nancy Cruzan, she's in a pers persistive, uh, uh, um, persistent vegetative state. And she's, there's no hope for, the doctors are saying, or at least doctors are saying there's no hope for recovery. She has no brain um, 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 activity. So what can be done? So there is a bit of a spectrum in Jewish thought amongst rabbis. Some, uh, many rabbis will say that she can be removed from life support. There are ways to do this slowly, etc., and see if the body kicks in or if the body doesn't kick in and then kind of allow that to guide um, the, 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 the help. And that seems to be the way, you know, that seems to be a majority approach. Um, will you find some who say that nothing should be done and she should remain forever? You might find some that, that, that say that, but by and large, that's not the case. But it would be done with a lot of sensitivity and a lot of, um, of, of respect for life and for the value of life. But I, I really hesitate to, um, to really weigh in definitively on that. But I would, so I'm, I'm really speaking more of a general approach to cases like that, like of life support. But to, circling back to what I said before, again, number one, it's, it's very hard to weigh in on any specific case without being involved in that case. Number two, it's usually better not to put the person on life support than to put them on it and now be faced with the dilemma of pulling the plug. By the way, to lighten the mood a little bit, I don't know if it will, but maybe, there's one of my, famous, one of my, one of my uh, favorite uh, quips about that is, there's a guy sitting on the couch watching football and uh, gets to a commercial and he says to his wife, look, if I ever get into a vegetative state, pull the plug. She walks over to the TV and pulls it out. <laughs> but anyway, but the, it's, 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 it's preferable in many cases to not put someone onto the life support rather than have be faced with that decision and that moment of when to take them off it, which is a much harder thing to do. Yeah. Right, that would be letting them die naturally, correct. By the way, in Israel, yes, and in Israel, they've created, a, they've created life support machines to be sensitive to this, where they only go on for a certain amount of time. Where they only, in other words, they, when, you, when you turn on life support, it will, it will end in, unless you trigger it again, which would mean that you can allow the person to pass naturally without having to do something active like pulling a plug, which might feel a little bit harder to do to actively end. So this way, one is not actively ending. One is only putting someone on life support, like on it. Uh, use a crude example, like on a timer almost, where that's going to end also, unless it's, but again, I just want to be very clear here. I, I'm not a doctor, but I will say that, that obviously, um, every case is absolutely unique and every case needs to be looked at in a 100% in a, like, unique way and, 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 and a, uh, um, with a unique perspective. I'm just thinking now, maybe this is going to come up next week, the case of the conjoined twins Maybe I'll with C. Everett Koop and, and Rabbi Feinstein. Um, the Rabbi Feinstein from the Lower East Side, C. Everett Koop, who became later the Surgeon General of the United States, was the head of uh, a, a children's hospital in Philadelphia, and they consulted together on a specific case. I may bring that up next week because it's a powerful. And then the, one of the twins did die. Right, yeah. Well, a lot of times I knew this. one would live. Yes. One would live. They, all, they, they shared a heart, but it was, all, it was in one of them. The other one was benefit. Right, so the question was, 
the question, and the, the hospital, the doctor, C. Everett Koop said, C. Everett Koop himself said, that we have to bring in a rabbi to, 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 to bring in a perspective, um, uh, an ethical perspective on this. And they brought in Rabbi Feinstein, who we quoted today. So I think maybe we'll, I don't know if it's going to come up next week. We'll see if we can fit it in next week. Yeah, and then. See you guys. Okay, my mother-in-law. This was in the end of 2000. My mother-in-law was in rehab, so my sister-in-law had come down to help her, and she had a stroke. She had a DNR. It was a 